Welcome to Drift Off, bedtime stories to help you unwind, relax, and drift off. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Joanne, and it's a pleasure helping you get restful sleep. You may have noticed that I don't have ads on the podcast. That's because I want this space to be restful. And instead of reading ads, I'd much rather read you a relaxing bedtime story. That's why I created this podcast, to offer you a calming, listening experience where nothing else is needed of you. Only a quiet space where your imagination can be free to drift off far, far away from your daily obligations and to help you ease into a restful night's sleep. So if you're enjoying the show and want to support the podcast so we can continue making more sleepy bedtime stories, check out our premium membership where you can enjoy intro-free episodes, you'll have access to two bonus episodes per month, a monthly guided relaxation to help you get sleepy, and as of most recently, you'll have access to the entire audiobook Little House in the Big Woods over three and a half hours of continuous storytelling to help you drift off. You can sign up today at driftoff.supercast.com or see the link in the show notes. That's driftoff.supercast.com Tonight I will be reading from the Made Up Book Series by Enos Haynes Irwin, published in 1909 that features a little girl named Maida who is sickly and lame. Maida is the daughter to Jerome Buffalo Westerbrook, a well-known, successful Wall Street businessman. He decides to buy Maida a little shop in Charleston, Massachusetts, to give her a purpose and to help improve her health. But her father has only one condition, that she not tell anyone who she is or who her father is. And for the first time in her life, Maida finds true happiness, living in an ordinary neighborhood and making friends with ordinary children. And so, as always, my friend, settling comfortably under the covers, take a full, comfortable breath. And as you exhale, relax and let go. Allow any tension to just melt away. Letting your body sink deeper and deeper down into the softness of your bed. There is nothing else to do and nowhere else to be. So just lay back, relax, and enjoy the story.
Chapter 5 Primrose Court But during the first two weeks, a continual rush of business made long days for Maida. All the children in the neighborhood were curious to see the place. It had been dark and dingy as long as they could remember. Now it was always bright and pretty, always sweet with the perfume of flowers, always gay with the music of birds. But more, the children wanted to see the lame little girl who tended store, who seemed to try so hard to please her customers, and who was so affectionate and respectful with the old, old lady whom she called Granny. For a week, Maida kept rather close to the shop. She wanted to get acquainted with all her customers. Moreover, she wanted to find out which of the things she had bought sold quickly and which were unpopular. After a day or two, her life fell into a regular program. Early in the morning, she would put the shop to rights for the day's sale, dusting, replacing the things she had sold, rearranging them often according to some pretty new scheme. About eight o'clock, the bell would call her into the shop, and it would be brisk work until nine. Then would come a rest of three hours, broken only by an occasional customer. In this interval, she often worked in the yard, raking up the leaves that fell from vine and bush, picking the bravely blooming dahlias, gathering sprays of woodbine for the vases, and scattering crumbs to the birds. At twelve, the children would begin to flood the shop again, and Maida would be on her feet constantly until two. Between two and four came another long rest. After school trade started up again. Often, it lasted until six, when she locked the door for the night. In her leisure moments, she used to watch the people coming and going in Primrose Court. With Rosie's and Dickie's help, she soon knew everybody by name. She discovered by degrees that on the right side of the court lived the Hales, the Clarks, the Doyles, and the Doors. On the left side, the Duncans, the Brines, and the Allisons. In the big house at the back lived the Lathrops. Betsy was a great delight to Maida for the neighborhood brimmed with stories of her mischief. She had buried her best doll in the ash barrel, thrown her mother's pocketbook down the cesspool, put all the clean laundry into a tub of water, and painted the parlor fireplace with tomato ketchup. In a single afternoon, having become secretly possessed of a pair of scissors, she cut all the fringe off the parlor furniture cut great scallops in the parlor curtains, cut great patches of fur off the cat's back. When her mother found her, she was busy cutting her own hair. Often, Granny would hear the door slam on Maida's hurried rush from the shop. Hobbling to the window, she would see the child leading Betsy by the hand. Running away again was all Maida would say. Occasionally, Maida would call in a vexed tone. Now how did she creep past the window without my seeing her? 
and outside would be rosy-cheeked, brass-buttoned Mr. Flanagan carrying Betsy home. Once, Billy arrived at the shop, bearing Betsy in his arms. She was almost to the bridge, he said, when I caught sight of her from the car window. Betsy never seemed to mind being caught. For an instant, the little rosebud that was her mouth would part over the tiny pearls that were her teeth. This roguish smile seemed to say, You wait until the next time. You won't catch me then. Sometimes Betsy would come into the shop for an hour's play. Maida loved to have her there, but it was like entertaining a whirlwind. Betsy had a strong curiosity to see what the drawers and boxes contained. Everything had to be put back in its place when she left. Next to the Hales lived the Clarks. By the end of the first week, Maida was the chief adoration of the Clark twins. Dorothy and Mabel were just as good as Betsy was naughty. When they came over to see Maida, they played quietly with whatever she chose to give them. It was an hour, ordinarily, before they could be made to talk above a whisper. If they saw Maida coming into the court, they would run to her side, slipping a hot little hand into each of hers. Attended always by this roly-poly bodyguard, Maida would limp from group to group of the playing children. Nobody in Primrose Court could tell the Clark twins apart. Maida soon learned the difference, although she could never explain it to anybody else. It's something you have to feel, she said. Billy Potter enjoyed the twins as much as Maida did. Good morning, Dorothy Mabel, he always said when he met one of them. Is this you or your sister? And he always answered their whispered remarks with whispers so much softer than theirs that he finally succeeded in forcing them to raise their shy little voices. The Doyles and the Doors lived in one house next to the Clarks, Molly and Tim on the first floor, Dickie and Delia above. Maida became very fond of the Doyle children. Like Betsy, they were too young to go to school, and she saw a good deal of them in the lonely school hours. The puddle was an endless source of amusement to them. As long as it remained, they entertained themselves, playing along its shores. There's that child in the water again, Granny would cry from the living room. Looking out, Maida would see Tim spread out on all fours. Like an obstinate little pig, he would lie still until Molly picked him up. She would take him home, and in a few moments, he would reappear in fresh, clean clothes again. Hello, Tim, Billy Potter would say whenever they met. Fallen into a pud muddle lately? The word pud muddle always sent Tim off into peals of laughter. It was the only thing Maida had discovered that could make him laugh, for he was as serious as Molly was merry. Molly certainly was the jolliest little girl in the court. Maida had never seen her with anything but a smiling face. Dickie's mother went to work so early and came back so late that Maida had never seen her. But Dickie soon became an intimate. Maida had begun the reading lessons 
and Dickie was so eager to get on that they were progressing famously. The Lathrops lived in the big house at the back of the court. Granny learned from the Mrs. Allison that, formerly, the whole neighborhood had belonged to the Lathrop family, but they had sold all their land, piece by piece, except the one big lot on which the house stood. Perhaps it was because they had once been so important that Mrs. Lathrop seemed to feel herself a little better than the rest of the people in Primrose Court. At any rate, although she spoke with all, the Mrs. Allisons were the only ones on whom she condescended to call. Maida caught a glimpse of her occasionally on the piazza. A tall, thin woman, white-haired and sharp-featured, who always wore a worsted shawl. The house was a big, bulky building, a mass of piazzas and bay windows with a hexagonal cupola on the top. It was painted white with green blinds and trimmed with a great deal of wooden lace. The wide lawn was well kept and plots of flowers here and there gave it a gay air. Laura had a brother named Harold, who was short and fat. Harold seemed to do nothing all day long but ride a wheel at a tearing pace over the asphalt paths and regularly, for two hours every morning, to draw a shrieking bow across a tortured violin. The more Maida watched Laura, the less she liked her. She could see that what Rosie said was perfectly true. Laura put on airs. Every afternoon, Laura played on the lawn. Her appearance was the signal for all the small fry of the neighborhood to gather about the gate. First would come the Doyles, then Betsy, then, one by one, the strange children who wandered into the court until there would be a row of wistful little faces stuck between the bars of the fence. They would follow every move that Laura made as she played with the toys spread in profusion upon the grass. Laura often pretended not to see them. She would lift her large family of dolls, one after another, from cradle to bed and from bed to tiny chair and sofa. She would parade up and down the walk, using first one doll carriage, then the other. She would even play a game of croquet against herself. Occasionally, she would call in a condescending tone, you may come in for a while if you wish, little children. And when the delighted little throng had scampered to her side, she would show them all her toy treasures on condition that they did not touch them. When the proceedings reached this stage, Maida would be so angry that she could look no longer. Very often, after Laura had sent the children away, Maida would call them into the shop. She would let them play all the rest of the afternoon with anything her stock afforded. On the right side of the court lived Arthur Duncan, the Mrs. Allison, and Rosie Brine. The more Maida saw of Arthur, the more she disliked him. In fact, she hated to have him come into the shop. It seemed to her that he went out of his way to be impolite to her. Betty looked at her with a decided expression of contempt in his big, dark eyes. 
but Rosie and Dickie seemed very fond of him. Billy Potter had once told her that one good way of judging people was by the friends they made. If that were true, she had to acknowledge that there must be something fine about Arthur that she had not discovered. Maida guessed that the WMNTs met three or four times a week. Certainly, they were very busy doings at Dickie's or at Arthur's house every other day. What it was all about, Maida did not know, but she fancied that it had much to do with Dickie's frequent purchases of colored tissue paper. The Mrs. Allison had become great friends with Granny. Matilda, the blind sister, was very slender and sweet-faced. She sat all day in the window, crocheting the beautiful, fleecy shawls by which she helped support the household. Jemima, the older, short, fat, and with snapping black eyes, did the housework, attended to the parrot, and waited by inches on her afflicted sister. Occasionally, in the evening, they would come to call on Granny. Billy Potter was very nice to them both. He was always telling the sisters the long, amusing stories of his adventures. Miss Matilda's gentle face used positively to beam at these times, and Miss Jemima laughed so hard that, according to her own story, his talk put her in stitches. Maida did not see Rosie's mother often. To tell the truth, she was a little afraid of her. She was a tall, handsome, black-browed woman, a grown-up Rosie, with an appearance of great strength and of even greater temper. Ah, that child's the limb, Granny would say, when Maida brought her some new tale of Rosie's disobedience. And yet, in the curious way in which Maida divined things that were not told her, she knew that, next to Dickie, Rosie was Granny's favorite of all the children in the neighborhood. With all these little people to act upon its stage, it is not surprising that Primrose Court seemed to Maida to be a little theater of fun, a stage to which her window was the royal box. Something was going on there from morning to night, here would be a little group of little girls playing house with numerous families of dolls. There it would be boys, gathered in an excited ring, playing marbles or top. Just before school, games like leapfrog or tag would prevail. But later, when there was more time, hoist the sail would fill the air with its strange cries, or hide-and-seek would make the place boil with excitement. Maida used to watch these games wistfully, for Granny had decided that they were all too rough for her. She would not even let Maida play London Bridges Falling Down or drop the handkerchief, anything, in fact, in which she would have to run or pull. But Granny had no objections to the gentler fun of ring-a-ring-a-rounder, water-water-wildflower, the farmer in the dell. Maida used to try to pick out the airs of these games on the spinet. She never could decide which was the sweetest. Maida soon learned how to play jackstones. The thing she most wanted to learn, however, was jump rope. Every little girl in Primrose Court could jump rope, 
even the twins, who were especially nimble at Pepper. Maida tried it one night, all alone in the shop, but suddenly her weak leg gave way under her and she fell to the floor. Granny, rushing in from the other room, scolded her violently. She ended by forbidding her to jump again without special permission. But Maida made up her mind that she was going to learn sometime, even as she said with a roguish smile, if it took a leg. She talked it over with Rosie. You let her jump just one jump every morning and night, Granny, Rosie advised, and I'm sure it will be all right. That won't hurt her any, and, after a while, she'll find she can jump two, then three, and so on. That's the way I learned. Granny agreed to this. Maida practiced constantly, one jump in her nightgown just before going to bed, and another all dressed up just after she got up. I jumped three jumps this morning without falling, Granny, she said one morning at breakfast. Within a few days, the record climbed to five, then to seven, then at a leap to ten. Dr. Pierce called early one morning. His eyes opened wide when they fell upon her. Well, well, Pinkwink, he said. What do you mean by bringing me way over here? I thought you were supposed to be a sick young person. Where did you get that color? A flush like that of pink sweet pea blossom had begun to show in Maida's cheek. It was faint, but it was permanent. Why, you're the worst fraud on my list. If you keep on like this, young woman, I shan't have any excuse for calling. You've done fine, Granny. Granny looked, as Dr. Pierce afterwards said, as tickled as punch. How do you like shopkeeping, Dr. Pierce went on. Maida plunged into praise, so swift and enthusiastic, that Dr. Pierce told her to go more slowly, or he would put a bit in her mouth. But he listened attentively. Well, I see you're not tired of it, he commented. Tired? Maida's indignation was so intense that Dr. Pierce shook until every curl bobbed. And I get so hungry, she went on. You see, I have to wait until two o'clock sometimes before I can get my lunch, because from twelve to two are my busy hours. Those days it seems as if the school bell would never ring. And as for sleeping, Maida stopped as if there were no words anywhere to describe her condition. Granny finished it for her. The child sleeps like a top. Billy Potter came at least every day and sometimes oftener. Every child in Primrose Court knew him by the end of the first week, and every child loved him by the end of the second, and they all called him Billy. He would not let them call him Mr. Potter, or even Uncle Billy, because he said he was a child when he was with them, and he wanted to be treated like a child. He played all their games with a skill that they thought no mere grown-up could possess. Like Rosie, he seemed to be bubbling over with life and spirits. He was always running, leaping, jumping, climbing, turning cartwheels and somersaults, 
vaulting fences and chinning himself unexpectedly whenever he came to a doorway. Oh, Mr. Billy, tis the child that you are, Granny would say, twinkling. Yes, ma'am, Billy would answer. At the end of the first fortnight, the neighborhood had accepted Granny and Maida as the mother-in-law and a daughter of a traveling man. From the beginning, Granny had seemed one of them, but Maida was a puzzle. The children could not understand how a little girl could be grown up and babyish at the same time. And if you stop to think it over, perhaps you can understand how they felt. Here was a child who had never played London Bridges Falling Down, or Jackstones, or Jump Rope or Hopscotch. Yet, she talked comfortably of automobiles, yachts, and horses. She knew nothing about geography, and yet her conversation was full of such phrases as the spring we were in Paris, or the winter we spent in Rome. She knew nothing about nouns and verbs, but she talked Italian fluently with the hand organ man who came every week, and many of her books were in French. She knew nothing about fractions or decimals, yet she referred comfortably to drawing checks, to gold eagles, and to Wall Street. Her writing was so bad that the children made fun of it, yet she could spin off a letter of eight pages in a flash, and she told the most wonderful fairy tales that had ever been heard in Primrose Court. Because of all these things, the children had a kind of contempt for her mingled with a curious awe. She was so polite with grown people that it was fairly embarrassing. She always rose from her chair when they entered the room, always picked up the things they dropped and never interrupted, and yet she could carry on a long conversation with them. She never said, yes ma'am, or no ma'am. Instead she said, yes Mrs. Brine, or no Miss Allison and she looked whomever she was talking with straight in the eye. She would play with the little children as willingly as the bigger ones. Often, when the older girls and boys were in school, she would bring out a lapful of toys and spend the whole morning with the little ones. When Granny called her, she would give all the toys away, dividing them with a careful justice. And yet, Whenever children bought things of her in the shop, she always expected them to pay the whole price. You could see how the neighborhood would fairly buzz with talk about her. As for Maida, with all this newness of friend-making and out-of-doors games, it is not to be wondered that her head was a jumble at the end of each day. In that delicious, dozy interval before she fell asleep at night, all kinds of pretty pictures seemed to paint themselves on her eyelids. Now it was rose red, swaying like a great overgrown scarlet flower from the bars of a lamp post. Now it was Dickie, hoisting himself along on his crutches, his face alight with his radiant smile. Now it was a line of laughing, rosy-cheeked children, as long as the tail of a kite pelting to goal at the magic cry, Liberty poles are bending. 
or it was a group of little girls setting out rows and rows of bright-colored paper dolls amongst the shadows of one of the deep old doorways. But always, in a few moments, came the sweetest kind of sleep. It did not seem to Maida that the days were long enough to do all the things she wanted to do.